He's the horse that nobody wanted to buy. Now Bourbon War has a chance to make it to the Kentucky Derby. We'll talk with his owner, who didn't think he'd still be the owner. Plus, if it's spring, it must be time for another round of Will the Preakness Stakes Remain at Pimlico? This year's springs come a little early. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit by the finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. He went ignored in not one but two different horse sales. But now this Colt's results match his running style, coming from out of nowhere in the blink of an eye. Bourbon War, a threatening presence, then stilts Moretti on the inside. They're at the top of the stretch. Grays Creek puts his head in front. Bourbon War on the outside is coming after him smartly. Bourbon War and Grays Creek. Bourbon War doing the better work. Now opens up three-quarters of a length. Moretti is resurgent, firing on the outside of Grays Creek and taking second late. But it's Bourbon War. Bourbon War gets the money by two and a half. In fact, when this horse won this race, his debut at Aqueduct in November, his trainer, Mark Hennig, wasn't there. He wasn't even in the country. He was on vacation in Aruba. He did watch the race on his phone, though he was sitting in a lounge chair on the beach. Yet for being as overlooked as he's been, and we'll get into why in a moment, Bourbon War was a fast-closing second in the Fountain of Youth behind the winner, Code of Honor. And heading into the Florida Derby, he's in the top 20 on the Kentucky Derby points list, which would put him in the starting gate on the first Saturday of May. So how could a horse with a pair of wins in four career starts, who finished second in a major derby prep, and who's a son of Tappet out of a grade one stakes winning mare, my conquestadori, have been so overlooked and, at least at the sales, neglected multiple times? Let's ask a couple of men who are more used to buying and selling horses rather than following them into the winner's circle, Mike McMahon and Jamie Hill of McMahon and Hill Bloodstock, who join us here on In the Gate. So you gentlemen bought this horse in November of 2016, when the horse was still a baby, for $410,000. A year later, the thought was to sell him at the Keeneland September sale, but it didn't quite work out. What happened? It was actually... um a vet issue. Um, he was in the select portion of the sale, and uh, he had an X-ray issue that that bogged it up. Um, otherwise, he probably would be racing for uh, one of Mike Ryan's clients or in Japan. So he RNA'd. There was a chip found in an X-ray. Correct. We, you know, we were of the opinion that it was going to be okay, and you know, veterinarians have different opinions, and. It comes down to risk and, and really what, what you're willing to spend versus what you're getting on x-rays. And uh, that was the deal breaker. So then you tried again with Bourbon War last year, 2018, at the Fasig Tipton two-year-old in training sale. So, Mr. McMahon, what happened there? Uh, well, he it, it, it didn't breathe especially fast. I mean, uh, 
Jamie and I watched the, the Breeze shows. We thought it was an okay Breeze. A lot of people liked the Breeze. They came back, they looked at them, and, and we, we were getting action in the repository despite that it wasn't a very fast Breeze, but we weren't getting scopes. And um, finally, a, a friendly trainer just before the sale calls up and says, you know, you've got a chip in that horse's ankle. And Jamie and I were, you know, our veterinarian had to see anything like that. And sure enough, there was a discussion among the veterinarian, veterinarian group that there was a chip and that bogged up that year. So we scratched them minutes before the sale. But it wasn't really a chip, was it? Is the way I understand it. That's correct. You know, you know we sent another veterinarian who hadn't been involved to re-X-ray the ankle, and there was nothing there. What was it? Uh, it? It may have been just a overexposure or a double exposure. It probably should have been retaken by any number of veterinarians that examined him. And Jamie and I, of course, were frustrated by that. Uh, it's, it's hard to get your horse through all the hoops and do well in this business, and then to have something like that and mix it up. Uh, was very frustrating. And then when he didn't sell in the spring of 2018, he started training with Mark Hennig, and it looked like he'd be ready to run over the summer at Saratoga, but then he suffered another setback, a physical one. What did you think when that happened? We, You know, it was just a shin. It wasn't a big deal, and Mark's a very conservative trainer, so it really wasn't that big of an issue. We were disappointed not to run at Saratoga because that's what we had, that was our target. But uh, it wasn't a big deal, and we're we're pretty patient in general, anyway. And the, and the truth be told, you know, he in the most mornings when he would train, he wasn't lighting it up. He wasn't really. He was kind of distracted some days, and other days he was focused. And so there at the time, you know, Mark was being cautious because he didn't really know what he had. He knew at moments that the horse had talent, but he was a little concerned that he wasn't consistent. So even though the goal was to buy and sell, you still had Bourbon War when he was finally ready to debut in November in an off-the-turf one-mile race at Aqueduct. What did you think after that race? We were pretty excited. Um, you know, Mark was cautious going in. He said, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do. He said, uh, let's try and start him on the turf and see what we have. We can always go to dirt. And his pedigree, you know, he, he can go either way, according to his pedigree. So when it rained off, we weren't afraid, which was great. And then he ran the race he ran, and, and we kind of, he just toyed with a pretty decent field on paper. Now, granted, it wasn't off the turfer, so some of those horses were meant to be on the turf. But the way he did it and the way he finished and galloped out was certainly, you know, for us it was validation that that Mike and I from day one had really loved this horse and weren't ready to give up on him, even through, you know, the two setbacks and other people not jumping on him and, and, you know, going doggo over him. We really believed in him from the get-go. And it really was a nice validating moment for us that he was the horse that we hoped he was. Mike McMahon and Jamie Hill of McMahon and Hill Bloodstock are with us here on In the Gate. Now, obviously, when you're a come-from-behinder, you have to weave your way through traffic, which can be tricky. He finished fourth in the Remsen at Aqueduct, working through traffic, and then had to be patient as horses around him were running out of gas in the Fountain of Youth. Bourbon War wound up second. Now, when you look at his chances in the Florida Derby, what do you think? Are you glad you still have him? Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't be? I wouldn't trade with anybody. Yeah, and it, it, here's the other thing. If you go back and watch the Remsen, if you look at the break, he had his leg, front legs crossed, and he nearly went to the ground. I mean, the fact that Irad stayed on, coming out of the gate with his legs crossed, 
and not not many people know that, but if, if you we actually have a photo of it, his nose is on the ground and his front two feet are crossed. So the fact that he picked himself up, Irad said, I didn't think I could win it, but I wanted to get some experience. So he ate a bunch of dirt. He stayed in behind horses. And Irad, he was so excited coming back. And I, I was a little disappointed, but I met him down in the paddock. Um, you know, at Aqueduct, they come back and unsaddle in the paddock. And he said, guys, this is a real horse. He said he did everything other than the break. He did everything I want. I think we got a really good horse going forward. And that experience he got in that race proves in, in the allowance that he came back and won. You know, he weaved through traffic and dove through a hole that really wasn't there and was very impressive. Bourbon War, Irad Ortiz Jr. just picking a path here for this son of Tappet. He looks loaded and he's on the attack now. Back at the inside and Archer Dust with a quarter of a mile left to go. Bourbon War now secures his spot between horses and he's now in front. Inside that final furlong, Bourbon War has the kick and he has the lead. Cutting Humor is second, the award winner is third, but Bourbon War got the right trip and he's on to victory at 3-2. to two. So then you partner that with his fast clothes and the uh, family youth. And you got to be excited, especially as the races get longer. I would imagine that when you're in the business of buying and selling horses, pin hooking, as it's known in the industry, you probably don't allow yourself to get too attached to any one horse. What about this guy, though? He was a special horse at the farm, actually. So the, most of the pin hooks go to my farm in Lexington. And... Um, you know, he was a high-energy, active, intelligent horse who wanted to do well and uh, really prepped beautifully for the sale. And this was a gorgeous horse and not an easy horse to be around. I mean, you know, like to jump around and rear up and slap at you a little bit. But those aren't negatives necessarily. Those, you know, the, the horse was a very uh, active horse and um, very agile. A lot of things you're seeing racing now. We saw him when he was 14 to 16 months old. So um, it's exciting to be able to have one that you like all along, that's out of a mare this good, that's by a tire like Tappet. I mean, that's the other thing, too. Like when you're talking about that he was kind of distracted and not really the light switch wasn't turned on until late in the two-year-old year when he broke his maiden. I mean, I think that's not a bad thing. You know, some of these horses are light switches flipped right now, and they're not going to be as competitive later. I mean, this horse acts like he could be just starting to get good. Um, it's a really good, you know, good feeling from that point of view. By the way, you're obviously involved in partnerships. Each of your partners winds up co-owning three different horses under your umbrella. Someone like Sal Kuman is a minority owner on a whole lot of successful horses. With that kind of arrangement being all the rage, how can you determine an Eclipse Award winner for Owner of the Year? Wow. <laughs> Jamie, you about you on that one? <laughs> there's, there's no easy answer to that question. You know, buying in after the horse has already won a stake, you know, we all can see it. And, and you know, if Saul was, if you asked Saul and you said, open up your books and tell me if this has worked for you financially, I'm going to guess in some instances, yes, but in most instances, no. Because he's buying in at a premium after the horse has already proven that they're a, that they're a capable racehorse. So, you know, I, I think it's a very difficult answer. I've got all the respect in the world for Saul Kuman. He has really come in and spent a lot of money and brought a very young, energetic feel to the game. And I think he deserves a ton of credit. Now, maybe there needs to be an award that's a separate award for, for something like that, since there are partnerships that have many, many different horses. So, you know, Bourbon Lane, for instance, and West Point and Starlight, 
we've all had good horses, but not all the same owners are on in on each of those horses. So maybe a special category for partnerships or for entities like ours. Because if you look in Australia right now, every horse is owned by 30 or 40 people, if not more. And they're, they've fully embraced the partnership role. Their names are in the program. Every person's name's in the program. How great would that be here in America, that everybody thinks that could own a piece of horse, could own a piece of a good horse and have their name in the program? Yeah, but you'd be carrying around a program the size of War and Peace. But the Phipps's and Judmont and, you know, the, the big guys, you know, they're doing a, a whole different program than what, you know, any of the partnerships are doing. And they, and they should be rewarded for that, too. I'm not a real big fan of, of the way the Derby went with, you know, all the people buying in for their 10% and suddenly so they say they had a Derby winner. I mean, I, I kind of feel like it cheapens it a little bit. But, um, you know, there are no rules against it. and You can't blame people for taking advantage of that. So it's free market, and uh, Jamie's right. They should have their own award. Well, we certainly wish your partnership the best of luck with Bourbon War going forward in the Florida Derby. Thank you both so much for a few minutes. Okay, thank, thank you, Barry. If it's spring, it must be time to ask the annual question, will the Preakness be moved out of Pimlico? The battle lines are being drawn, and the fight could get really ugly. If you're not careful after the break, you might just get caught in the crossfire. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. 35 years ago, in March of 1984... Oh my God, was that really 35 years ago? Officials from the city of Baltimore tried to use the law of eminent domain. Officials from the city of Baltimore tried to use the law of eminent domain to take control of the Baltimore Colts and prevent them from moving. Legislation passed and was signed by then Governor Harry Hughes to condemn the team and seize control, which is how the law of eminent domain works. The problem for the city was that the night before, the Colts packed up all of their belongings onto 22 moving vans with snow falling and left for Indianapolis before their offices could be padlocked. So much for eminent domain then. Now, the city might try the tactic again with regard to Pimlico Racecourse and the Preakness. City officials, including Mayor Catherine Pugh, are suing the Stronach Group, which operates the Maryland Jockey Club, Laurel, and Pimlico racecourses, in order to prevent them from moving the Preakness to Laurel, which is located south of Baltimore and north of Washington, D.C. Technically, under state law, the Preakness can only be moved out of Pimlico, quote, as a result of a disaster or emergency. But Stronach has made it clear over the years that they want to move the second jewel of the Triple Crown, to a track in which they've poured hundreds of millions of dollars in improvements, and that's Laurel. Sounds like fighting words to me. Where do we go from here? Well, if you've been with us on this podcast over the years, we have an expert when it comes to the future of the Preakness, and that's Childs Walker of the Baltimore Sun, who makes his return to In the Gate a little earlier than usual this year. So usually, Childs, this issue of the Preakness's future comes up at race time in mid-May, naturally. So why is this invective from Baltimore City officials happening now? Well, here's here's basically what, what's happened. I mean, as, as you know, this discussion has been ongoing for decades now. I mean, r- really, really, the central issues are what they've been for a long time. But what happened was in December, the Maryland Stadium Authority 
finally released this long-anticipated report on, on Pimlico in which they proposed this plan for redeveloping the track at a cost of more than $400 million. And that was released leading right into the legislative session, which started in, in January, the state, the state legislative session. And so that sort of finally forced matters to a head. I mean, you know, people have been waiting for, for this report to come out. And so now that you have this proposal on the table, you know, your, your Baltimore leader said, okay, well, now's the time to try to make this happen. And the Strata Group officials basically said what they've said all along, which is, okay, if you guys want to build it on your dime, fine. We're not going to contribute any money to it. You know, we see Laurel Park as, as, as a better investment. We think Laurel Park can host Preakness if we have to leave Fimico. And so we're kind of not going to play ball. And so that's where we are. And, and then, of course, last week came the news that uh, the city filed a lawsuit against the Strata Group attempting to uh, ask a judge to give them ownership of the track and, you know, block any, any move of the Preakness. So things have gotten, uh, gotten kind of nasty over the last few weeks, but, but not in an unpredictable way. Strangely, the Maryland Stadium Authority, when they came out with that study, that the remodeling would cost $424 million exactly, the study didn't say who should or would pay for that. So how was the fact that that didn't enter into the study, how was that received by city officials and the Stronic Group and the people of Baltimore? Well, I, I think it was it was understood that that was not what I mean that that was not in the scope of of the study that had, that that had been ordered. That basically they were to come up with a plan, and you know then the political leaders would would figure out the the political leaders and and the track operators, being the Strana Group, would would have to figure out how to how to execute it if they wanted to execute it. So that's what happened. But I mean, I, I think we we all knew all along, and anybody who paid attention to the issue all along knew that no matter what plan they came up with, it was going to be a heck of a difficult question to say who's going to pay for this and, and, and probably one that was going to be impossible to answer. And of course that's exactly what, what has happened. So, so again, I can't think that if you've been paying any kind of attention to this issue, you know, in recent years that, that you could be surprised by the battle that we're seeing now. Obviously the emotional pull of history is what's at play here, but is the percentage of people in Baltimore who really want the track to remain a majority or a really vocal minority, especially in light of the price tag? I don't think that we really know the answer to that question. I haven't seen any good polls that, that really tell me the answer to that question. My sense of it is that you have you have a large number of people who would casually say that they, they want the race to stay in Baltimore, but when you say, would you want the city to pay $400 million for it, then, 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 then probably the answer is no for the majority. That's my guess, just based on having talked to people over the years. But I, I mean, I, I don't know that we know that in a statistical way. And, and of course, the question ultimately goes beyond the city because you know if you're if you're talking about that kind of money, you're probably ultimately talking about state bonds. And then I think it becomes a really difficult sell to say to the the majority of people in the state, you're, you guys are going to have to pony up 400 mil so this race can stay in Baltimore instead of going to Laurel. And, and that's kind of what a lot of the state leaders have said that. I mean, they're not stepping up in a big way for Baltimore because I, I'm, I'm not sure they see it as a as, as an issue that they can really sell to their constituents. You can save a lot of school systems with $424 million. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Now, let's just say it for what it is, okay? Pimlico Racecourse is a dump. I've been there for a couple of Preaknesses, but the Stronic Group says that the Preakness will stay at Pimlico through 2020 because Laurel, quote-unquote, isn't ready. 
in their words, to host the Preakness just yet. So what else does the Stronic Group plan to do with Laurel to make it ready? Well, there's a lot of stuff they still have to do. I mean, they're, they're, they're not in any way done with their, their work on the grandstand. Um, they, they have all sorts of plans for luxury suites that they want to put in. I mean, mo- most of that work is not done. They're continuing to work on the backstretch. I mean, they've, they've made a lot of progress there, but there's, there's, there's a lot more to be done. I think they would have to work on parking for an event of that scale. Um, they, they would not plan to, if, if they held the Preakness at Laurel, they, they would not do the traditional infield setup, um, but they would have sort of a party concert area off to the side. They would, they would sort of have to set up that area. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, they've put a lot of money into the track, but there's a lot more to be done. And one of the issues that's on the, on the table is there's a bill in the legislature right now that would, um, that would create, I think, $120 million in funding. 80 of that would go to to further improvements at Laurel, and another 40 would go to uh, sort of refurbish the training track at Bowie because that's a major issue to the horsemen. They, they say that Fimlico closes. They need somewhere to train, obviously. I mean, Laurel, Laurel cannot accommodate all of them. So, so that's, a, that's a major issue within the industry. Childs Walker of the Baltimore Sun is with us here on In the Gate. Now, here's the thing. You know, as well as anyone else, how the Colts left town before the city could take control of the team and its property. The Maryland Jockey Club, won by the Stronic Group, can't do what the Colts did, just pack up on a bunch of moving trucks. So they're going to have to confront each other. What kind of relationships exist on a person-to-person level between city officials and the Stronic Group officials? I don't think they're very good right now. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of mistrust. I don't think it's a situation where you have many years of, you know, successful relations and negotiations between these parties to, to fall back on. I mean, I think that the mayor, Mayor Catherine Pugh, has met with Tim Ritvo, who, who is, you know, kind of the main decision maker for Stronach, a few times. But, I, you know, I, I don't think there's any kind of depth of, of relationship there. So I don't think they're anywhere close to, to coming to any kind of accommodation on this. And, and, and in fact, you know, I think I think the battle lines are being are being drawn right now. I mean, you know, they're moving further apart instead of instead of moving closer together. Now, I mean, again, I think I think the issue is that it's possible that Stronic would be able to move without coming to any kind of agreement with the city. You know, by by getting approval from the state. So, you know, if Stronic can have a good working relationship with the governor and and legislative leaders, maybe maybe, maybe they don't need to work out a compromise with the state. You have to think that one way or another, it's going to be played out in court, though. And when that happens, I don't think we know. Now, let's just play this out. All right. Let's just say that the city of Baltimore actually pays to refurbish Pimlico. Maybe not for $424 million, but let's just say they find a way to issue bonds or whatever, and they pay to redo Pimlico. Now, the city becomes a different kind of stakeholder. Even though Pimlico is run by the Stronic Group, now all of a sudden Baltimore has a little more skin in the game. How could a harmonious arrangement possibly be worked out under this scenario? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And and honestly, I think that the Stronic Group does not want to see that happen. I mean, I you know, I, I mean, I, they've they've said all along that they would be okay with the city redeveloping Pimlico, but I, I don't think that that's their preferred solution i mean i think that they want all momentum to go to go toward laurel and for the race ultimately to move to laurel so i'm not sure that there's a lot of interest on their side in in coming to a solution that sees the preakness stay at pimlico so i don't think there's a good answer to your question (laughs) so what is likely to happen next in the immediate sense we'll probably get a vote one way or another 
funding bill for further improvements at, at Laurel and, and as I said, the, the buoy uh, the buoy training course. And that will give us at least some sense of where the, the state legislature falls on this issue. But in terms of the greater fate of Simulcon and the Preakness, I don't know that we know exactly what's going to happen next. We have this case in court now. You know, that'll have to move along at some point. But in terms of serious negotiations to do something at Pimlico, I don't think we've gotten very far with that at all. So, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like that's going to be resolved by the end of this legislative session. So it seems like we're probably going to go into the race this year with, again, more questions than answers, even though the battle has certainly heated up during, during this legislative session. This isn't exactly what any of us would mean when we say spring has finally come, but yet <laughs> this has become an annual sign of spring. And thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this child's walker. This is not going away anytime soon, sir. It sure doesn't. No, I mean, this, this has been, you know, as, as we said, this has really been the discussion for decades. It's, uh, it's more intense now, but yeah, it's not going away. Our thanks to Child's Walker, Mike McMahon and Jamie Hill. Remember when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, then ran the Traverse Stakes in upstate New York? At Saratoga, 20,000 people watched him jog. The trackside breakfast patrons even put down their forks. Now picture an entire country behaving in that manner, and you'll know how legions of Australians feel about winks. For races are events, with people stopping what they're doing, and tens of thousands watching again via internet links. The great mayors won 32 stakes in a row, 24 of those grade ones. One more start, and then her career is done. That final run comes April 13th in the Queen Elizabeth at Randwick, where 19 of her 34 wins have come. She surely deserves to be celebrated, for she's not only been great, but stayed at that high level at the age of eight. But I can't help wonder what might have been if she'd taken on the world's best. Would she have finished first down the Royal Ascot Strait? You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.